When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Shopify presents cool sheets from aha to lying awake while you bake isn't cool. I suffered from the wrong kind of hot in bed, heat-induced insomnia. That was my aha moment. Bed sheets that keep you cool. Then I thought, how do I even sell bed sheets? That's when I had the idea that made it all possible. Signing up on Shopify. With the help of Shopify's intuitive online store creator, I started selling sustainable bamboo sheets that keep cool year-round. And my cool idea became a reality. Hot sleepers around the world rejoice. Shopify makes it simple to keep your cool while starting and growing your business. Start selling with Shopify today and join the commerce platform powering millions of businesses worldwide. From aha to anything is possible. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Start selling online today. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free 22. Shopify.com slash free 22. What is going on, Billy Sports fan? It's your favorite history teacher, Mr. Parker Ainsworth, here at another edition of FN Sports, the podcast where teachers grade sports biggest issues. And we just had the NFL Hall of Fame game. We are officially into football season. And so since we just inducted a whole class of 2022 people into the NFL Hall of Fame, it's time to start looking at 2023. We're going to do a little bit of a breakdown. We'll call it like a class rank as to who will get into the Hall of Fame in 2023, or at least make some predictions. So without further ado, let's dive on in. All right, so we should probably break down how this happens first to kind of explain what happens. But what the NFL does is they send out lists to a bunch of writers and other Hall of Famers and things like that across the NFL, or the NFL world, I should say, and they whittle down lists of like 50 to 25 to so on, and they kind of slowly, slowly, slowly take down several lists of eligible people. That's the senior class, which is like the elderly folks, guys from previous generations of football. That's how you get guys like Cliff Branch next to a Richard Seymour next to a Dick Vermeil because they have an entire group where you have to pick a couple of people from previous generations of football that 
either were playing well before they were thinking things like this Hall of Fame, before it wasn't were near as big a deal, before they had bigger than a couple people in a class. Those kinds of people make the senior list. They're previous generations of football players. There's a or like a grouping of coaches slash contributors. This is where you see front office people. Sometimes you see writers. Sometimes you see, obviously, coaches and people that fill out coaching staffs. All for the stuff they do around football, but isn't playing football. So if you are a player, you can go in as a player. And then if you're like Troy Aikman, you can also later go in as someone doing the play-by-play. Or if you're someone that played, then maybe it wasn't a Hall of Fame player, but you can go in as a coach. Right? So there's a whole section for just people that contributed to football without playing it. And then there's a section for modern players, people that are playing in the modern game. The definition for modern is kind of loose, but it's really look at someone who's retired five or so years ago and has had a few years since then maybe to kind of be on the ballot or to remain on the ballot because they get a certain amount of votes and so on. So the modern group of guys will be guys that played in the late 2000s, so like between 2005-2010 or then the 2010s, guys that have retired sometime in that window. And so therefore you're seeing this list of modern players going to be guys that are fairly familiar to everyone who's watched football in the 21st century. And then the senior class of players is typically guys that you would have been watching football in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Actually, we're kind of getting to the point now that we're in 2022 going to 23 that you're actually seeing guys from the 80s and earliest of the 90s also in this list. Now, typically a guy from like 92 played from like 79 to 92 and they just, you know, a long career. But that said, like we're spanning the entire spectrum of looking at things here. And so we're going to break down who should from each of those different delineations make their way in. It's worth pointing out that the NFL only pulls in four to eight players or people, because you could also have coaches and things like that, in a given year. So theoretically, you could have like one player from the old era, one player from the new era, and two coaches, or however that shakes out. Or you could have up to eight. You could have like one coach, two old players, and five modern players. We're going to bend the rules a little bit. We, <laughs> we're we going to have some outside looking in kind of guys for each category. We're also going to, if I'm being blunt, because the modern era is like my life of football, we're going to have five and so we're going to actually end up at nine people. I can't separate a couple of these guys. I think they're all Hall of Famers. And to be fair, they don't all have to go in the same year. Theoretically, guys could stay on the ballot if they receive a certain amount of votes from year to year. So with that said, let's get into looking at who in our class ranking of sorts will make it on the seniors list for the next Hall of Fame ceremony in 2023. All right, so I have two guys on my outside looking in of the seniors group. Now, if they elected five seniors, I could see how all five of these guys make it in, but I'm only going to have three seniors. So on my outside looking in, I'm going to start with Roger Craig. Now, Roger Craig was a three-time Super Bowl champion, played the bulk of his career with the San Francisco 49ers, was an Offensive Player of the Year in 1988, uh, was an All-Pro one year, second-team All-Pro, multiple Pro Bowls. Uh, He was the NEA MVP, which is back when they had multiple publications handing out the NFL's MVP award. Anyway, he's the first player to ever score three touchdowns in the Super Bowl and has the uh, record, or is still tied for the record with most touchdowns in a Super Bowl. If the objective is to win, it's hard to argue that other guys did more to help teams win the big game than Roger Craig. He's a 1980s all-decade team, which NFL does every decade, which kind of makes these things easy to go back and look at. But Roger Craig is, I think, also in like terms of 
reflecting on modern history of football. He's the first guy to have a thousand yard rushing and thousand yards receiving in the same season. Dual threat running back in a time well before that was even close to common, much less necessary. So Roger Craig is on the outside looking in. You're going to see the three names I've got. He's very, very close. But I've got Roger Craig just at the edge from those 1980s 49er teams. The next guy I'm going to let in is an offensive lineman. I guess we're going to list him as a guard, although at various points in his career, he played tackle and center. Rob Kuchenberg played guard most of his career as he, I guess, technically started with the Philadelphia Eagles uh, and then eventually spent 14 years playing for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, two-time Super Bowl champion that's also including the 1972 undefeated team, the only ever undefeated team in NFL history, uh, multiple-time All-Pro, multiple-time second-team All-Pro. He's on the Hall of Honor, or the, the honor roll of sorts around the Miami Dolphins. And I feel like all of those guys from that 72 team will eventually make their way in. So while Cooch doesn't necessarily make it right off the bat here, I do think the late, great Rob Kuchenberg will make it eventually, as all of those Dolphins guys will make it eventually. Again, they had an undefeated team. It's historically speaking, 17-0, it's it's the best team ever created. I know it's hard to think about 17-0 being the best team ever when 17 games is just the regular season now, but they won every game they set foot on the field for, and bluntly... They went to the Super Bowl in 71, went undefeated, won the Super Bowl in 72, and won the Super Bowl again in 73. That window of Miami Dolphins teams is pretty, pretty strong, and I feel like all those guys will make it in eventually. I just don't have him in quite yet. First guy I have getting in in this group of senior players is Billy White Shoes Johnson, because if I'm being completely honest, I had no idea he wasn't in yet. How was this guy not in yet? Played 14 seasons, three Pro Bowls, uh, changed the game a little bit as far as receiver goes because of his speed, the way he took the top off, obviously famous for things like his touch on celebrations, those kinds of things, the celebrations being, make it hard to tell the story of football without talking about Billy White Shoes Johnson. I think that needs to be the main criteria in getting into the Hall of Fame here. I can't talk to people about the history of football and not mention his name. Now, does that mean I'm going to talk about him as an Oiler or as a Falcon or as a Redskin or whatever? I don't know which of those guys you want to go with as far as which Billy White Shoes Johnson you want to put in, but one of those guys has to be in. He's on two different all-decade teams is on the 75th anniversary all-time team and the 100th anniversary all-time team. I don't know how he's not in, so he's got to make his way. He's already in the College Football Hall of Fame. It's time to get him into, as a senior, into the NFL's Pro Football Hall of Fame. The next senior I'm going to argue to get put in is also in the College Football Hall of Fame and not the NFL Hall of Fame, Tommy Nobis. Tommy Nobis was the NFL's Rookie of the Year for the expansion 1966 Atlanta Falcons. He was the first overall pick for said franchise and went on to be a multiple-time All-Pro, Pro pro Bowler, etc. He's on the NFL's 1960s All-Decade team, but as a pass rusher before pass rushing was commonplace, uh, he played a linebacker at a time where football players and linebackers were all much more like almost quasi-defensive ends. He's the only player to wear number 60 for the Atlanta Falcons. He was their inaugural rookie, their first, first overall pick in their expansion season. Went on to have a type of career that they retired his number for and frankly had they not been an expansion team had they been a team that was more set up for success and on the early stages of being a franchise he might already be in the hall of fame the only things that separate him from a number of his contemporaries and counterparts across the nfl's hall of fame landscape the guy's already in 
is that he doesn't have the team success and thus he doesn't get the same kind of accolades or same kind of pats in the back. But on the field, the film itself, he's the same kind of player. They're just down on the scoreboard because it's an expansion franchise. And if we're going to continue to have things like the NFL draft, we probably shouldn't punish guys for just being drafted to crappy teams or just starting teams, especially in a city like Atlanta, where they love the Atlanta Falcons. Like that's a very passionate fan base and franchise even if they've had mixed success, we're going to talk about the Super Bowl with Patriots, blah, blah, blah. But the Atlanta Falcons faithful will tell you that it's not his fault by any stretch that they didn't win games. He's a Hall of Fame caliber player that for some reason has not gotten in yet. Again, if you can't tell the story of the NFL without them, they need to be in the Hall of Fame. And you certainly can't tell the story of one of the 32 franchises, the Atlanta Falcons, without him. He's the most impactful Falcon on the field. He continues to serve as a Falcons member of the front office and those kinds of things afterwards as well. They, as a franchise, cannot be talked about without talking about Tommy Nobis. I don't really understand how that's not qualification in and of itself. My third and final senior getting in is Dallas Cowboys legend Chuck Howley. Now, I guess he was technically drafted by the Chicago Bears, but he's a Dallas Cowboys legend because, A, he does end up winning a Super Bowl. We talked about the 1971 Super Bowl that the Miami Dolphins lost before going undefeated the next season. He's on that Cowboys team that beats them in the Super Bowl in 1971. He's also the Super Bowl MVP the year before, even though the Dallas Cowboys lost to the Baltimore Colts. And I think what's interesting here is, again, in telling the story of the NFL, everyone mentions the only time a Super Bowl MVP has ever been handed to someone on the losing team. I think that's part of the folklore of the NFL. It's much like, you know, there's Jerry West stuff with the NBA and those kind of the same kinds of stories, but Chuck Howley does it in the NFL as an, a linebacker on a defense that, again, gave up 16 points, said Super Bowl, but he still gets the MVP as they designate him as a weak side linebacker but if you go back and pull up those clips which is a really fun thing to do go back and pull up some of these elder senior type guys clips he is all over the football field i don't really know how you could watch that tape and not imagine that he is the nfl the super bowl mvp and i think again if you're telling the story of the nfl how can you not mention that it's got this guy that wins the Super Bowl MVP, even though he's a linebacker on the losing team. Yes, we can bring up the All-Pros. He's in the you know six-time All-Pro, Pro Bowler, etc. He's Cowboys Ring of Honor, all those kinds of things. But again, that single... We, we glorify these performances in the big game. We need to identify that if we're going to hold those things to a high standard and not put a guy like Tom Nobis in because he never got to the game, we need to then put that high standard on letting guys like Chick Cowley in the Hall of Fame. I don't really get why he's not in... Yet, I understand that there's probably some Texan Dallas Cowboys bias coming in with me. Why, why they isn't he in yet? However, he was inducted in the Hall of Honor like around the Dallas Cowboys back in the 70s right after he retired. He has been long discussed as a legend in NFL football. It's time to get him into the Hall of Fame. All right, now, before we get into the OLI, the outside looking in of the coach or contributor getting into the Hall of Fame as far as that designation goes, I want to mention that I am not going to put Bud Adams into this Hall of Fame. I'm keeping him out. He ran a pro football team in the state of Texas, the Houston Oilers, and moved them out of Texas. Think about all you know about Texas and football and those kinds of things, and and he's a micromanager of the franchise across, I mean, he in the Bud Phillips era and all of the 1970s and 80s as well, but then you get to the mid-90s, and he wants to get things like the public funding for a new stadium and not 
play in the Astrodome, even though the Astrodome had just been renovated. He says, no, I want out of this. And Lanier, uh, Mayor Bob Lanier in the city of Houston is like, no, I'm not giving you a whole new stadium. We just renovated, took money out of the city of Houston's pockets to renovate the Astrodome. And now you want to build a new stadium just for you? Y'all going to share it just like everyone else in America shared? In the 1990s, it was not uncommon to see football and baseball teams share a stadium. And so, of course, that's what they're going to do. They just renovated the stadium that both teams played in. Anyway, I digress. We're not putting in Bud Adams. My outside looking in is Amy Trask. Trask first started working as an intern with the LA Raiders at the time in 1983 and worked her way up to eventually becoming the CEO of the Raiders in 1997. Uh, she then served as a CEO for like 16 years. Over those 16 years, obviously the tail end there, the Raiders kind of had fallen apart, but the early parts, they like go to Super Bowl and stuff. Like This is a very good run for the Raiders with her in charge. And I also think it's worth pointing out that as a woman entering the field of upper-level sports management in 1983 as an intern. She works all the way up to being the CEO. I think that's a story that needs to be told. But I also get how once she becomes CEO of the Raiders, they have a good front-end run, those first, like, six or seven years, and then eventually, like, things kind of go south. And so I'm going to put on the outside looking in. If you wanted to put more than one person in from the coach contributor category, I could see how she gets in, but I'm not quite putting her in yet. All right, so the controversy here is the guy I am putting in is Robert Kraft. Now, Robert Kraft has a number of off-the-field issues that we could dive into deeper, but those are separate podcasts for the days. And what I will say is is that those types of issues have not kept other people out of the Hall of Fame from this type of position. For what it's worth in that soliciting prostitution case, uh, I guess the case did get thrown out because the evidence had been illegally obtained or questionably obtained or whatever before it goes to trial. And I... I'm not going to sit here and say that he was guilty. I'm saying that clearly that tape had him on it, and then they had to throw it out and the case fell apart. <sighs> Again, I digress. But Robert Kraft makes it as a contributor or coach because, A, while well, soliciting prostitution is illegal. It's not quite the grossest thing that someone in the NFL Hall of Fame would be in with. And, B, as a principal owner, he has seen the New England Patriots win six Super Bowls. And he only got this position in 1994. I think it's like very quick to be like, oh, He's been the CEO of this his whole life, and really, he just got it in 94, and by 2002, they're winning their first Super Bowl, and by 2022, they're winning six Super Bowls. And again, I understand that there's Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski. I'm the first person to say that this is a team effort of sorts, but he's the guy signing the checks to everyone on the team making it happen, and if we're going to look at people that contribute to football in a non-playing fashion, I think you got to look at them. If you look at the history of football in New England slash Boston before he gets there, there's only a handful of playoff appearances, much less any kind of championship aspiration or anything like that. Truthfully, the franchise, as he gets there in 92, it's been, what, seven years since they made the playoffs and lost in the first round of the playoffs. They had lost in the Super Bowl in 1985, and that's like the big run. But that was kind of this like Cinderella story type thing where they went 11-5 that season out of nowhere and then the next season they go 11-5 and lose again in the first round and that's the most extensive type of success the franchise had had at all before Kraft shows up and now they're like the franchise we associate in the NFL with winning it's like them and I guess the Steelers have super seven Super Bowls and if you want to go like to the early 90s Cowboys but certainly not the last 25-30 years of Cowboys all of a sudden it's like he completely as an owner has shifted how we view that franchise in sports. And I think that has to get him into the Hall of Fame, if nothing else. All right, so again, I kind of cheated here and ended up putting 
five guys in as modern era players because that's like my lifetime of watching football. And so I really, really want to plug some of those guys. I think we should start with the outside looking in, though. A couple guys that did not quite make the list. Shane Leckler actually might get in if you look at like his Hall of Fame type of resume. However, I'm just not going to put a punter on my list. <laughs> he did play 17 years. He did make an all-pro team like, what is this? nine times he did make two different all decade teams because of when those 17 years overlapped uh he's on the 100th anniversary all-time team in the nfl he probably will eventually make it into the hall of fame as a punter it's just not fun to talk about punters when you can talk about all these other types of players and frankly while he was again all pro a couple nine times in a 17-year career some of the longevity things about being a 17-year pro we kind of need to make relative to punting because punters do that much more frequently than any position in the NFL and as we see advances in sports medicine and longer careers and so on for key kind of guys we're going to see punters get closer to 2025 a lot more often so some of these long-term numbers not to be like he's compiling stats because he's playing a long time but some of these long-term numbers will kind of become like a commonplace thing for hall of fame caliber players and so while Leckler is a Hall of Fame caliber player, I'm not really sure how I'm going to relate that to what punters are coming in the next 10 years to the Hall of Fame. And so we're not going to let that waste down. We're going to keep on moving. The first guys on the outside looking in that I have a really hard time not putting in, but I just I couldn't make six spots, is Chris Johnson. Johnson was a 2009 Offensive Player of the Year, had 2,000 yards rushing, and frankly, he will likely be one of the last ever to rush for 2,000 yards. Fellow Tennessee Titan Derrick Henry just did it in 2020, and I don't think we're going to see anyone else after Derrick Henry that can like shoulder the load of being a team's lone running back the way that they used to do it, and so that's going to split up those same rushing yards. That's a digression about modern football. Anyway, Chris Johnson was a one-of-one type of football player, and that 2009 season is one of the most impressive individual seasons I've ever seen with my own two eyes. Johnson had five other seasons of a 1,000 or more yards. I think the thing that hurts him in my eyes when looking at this list, and I hope you agree too, is that as a running back, and this just makes it hard for running backs, is his career is just kind of short. He's got the 2,000 yards, and I get that that might be enough to get him in, if not this first time around, his second or third. Because again, that was that phenomenal of a season. But we saw Adrian Peterson do it right before that. Uh, We saw... Derrick Henry do it just a couple seasons ago, so he's not the only guy in the era to ever do that. And while I think he's one of the last to ever do that, we might never see a guy do that again, I think the guy that kind of gets that credit for being last will be Derrick Henry. I don't know. I just think that he is one of one. That season was that kind of special. I just I can't quite put him in based on how special that one season was when his other seasons were just normal, all-pro, maybe not Hall of Fame caliber running back seasons. So I'm going to have to have him on the outside for a minute. My other two guys that have an outside looking in are really kind of going together, and I wish I could put Mike Tolbert or John Kuhn in because they're fullbacks in a world that like we don't see those kinds of guys anymore. Tolbert and Kuhn were fullbacks that could block and could carry the football, but were not tight ends that go out and play like the H-back type position, and that position might be gone. The same way we talk about the 2,000-yard rusher, Derrick Henry being the last one, that position might be gone for good, and I'd like to see those guys get in. I could see how those guys would get in. The thing that I think just hurts them a little bit is obviously we think of them getting the short yardage, those like 
two-yard run, but they get a touchdown. They have a total of four rushing yards a game, but they have two touchdowns or whatever because they have the short yardage situations. They're not, as far as like statistical rushing stats, quite Hall of Fame type of fullbacks. When you look at the kinds of fullbacks that get into the Hall of Fame, they were blocking backs. They were big, strong blocking backs. But when you look at the fullback position in the Hall of Fame, it's typically guys that can do both. And I like Tolbert. I like Kuhn. I'm an offensive line guy. You know I like blocking. I just look at what types of fullbacks make it in the Hall of Fame. And unfortunately, it is those guys that do both. All right, so the first guy I'm putting into the Hall of Fame in the modern era is Joe Thomas. Joe Thomas might be one of, if not the best offensive tackle I've ever seen play football. I could go on to the accolades about what he did well, that how few, and all those bad Browns teams, how few sacks allowed he had, and those kinds of things. But I think the deal is he kept up the Pro Bowl level play, and ten time Pro Bowl or twenty tens All Decade Team, uh, Cleveland Ring of Honor, those kinds of those things are all there. But the Iron Man aspect to Joe Thomas is, I think, what puts him over the top and makes him, even on a bunch of teams that were not very good, a very clear first ballot Hall of Famer. He played ten thousand three hundred sixty three consecutive snaps that's the longest streak since the nfl began recording the stat in 1999 uh he's the epitome of showing up and going to work every single day doing his job at the highest level while doing his and being selfless about it he's not going to go out there and complain about how bad the browns were he never demanded trades and those kinds of things he was ultimately loyal to a franchise that bluntly kind of stunk historically stinks now we don't need you know the, we have a whole episode about the quarterback controversy and all the things happening in cleveland you go back and check the catalog however if we look at just the joe thomas era of cleveland browns they went over 500 exactly one time with joe thomas and the lineup they only had seven wins one of the time with him in the lineup most of their seasons were four and twelve five and eleven kinds of seasons including one 0-16 type of season however you look at things like average value or players the highest value over replacement player joe thomas blows everyone on the roster and most people in the nfl out of the water. Now, I don't need to get into the math and nitty-gritty and be a total stat nerd about how difficult that is to do, but to be at the top of the NFL and value over a placement player on a team that wins no or next to no games is wild. I, I don't think that you can understand how unreal his like pro football focus types of grades and how great he was at his job without just watching him maul guys at left tackle. But that was truly something special to watch for all 10 seasons, he, or all 11 seasons, 10 years. He was in the NFL, and it was frankly kind of almost like you know pain in the chest. Oh, man, when he retires, right before they go on that little like Baker Mayfield, Odell Beckham, like relevancy streak, right? Like that was painful to watch because Joe Thomas put in a decade of his life for a team that was nowhere near that good just to keep the franchise afloat, frankly. It's no accident that he made 10 all-pro teams in an 11-year career. I mean, he's truthfully a bright spot in the darkest spot of a franchise that has a lot of dark spots. And so Joe Thomas has to be in the Hall of Fame. I don't understand how he could not be a first ballot kind of guy. You could talk about how he like created different types of ways to shot put off the line or about how incredibly strong that two-handed under like undercut punch he's doing as a left tackle pass blocking. Or you talk about how he down blocked on counters and stuff like that. 
But if you just look at the longevity of all pro play across a franchise that has never seen that type of play or hasn't certainly seen that in a long, long time, I think it's an automatic check. Joe Thomas needs to be in the Hall of Fame. Joe Thomas won like 48 games in his 11-year career. The next guy, Dwight Franey, had a lot more team success and frankly had a lot more offensive firepower up on the opposite side of the field from him. But Dwight Franey as a defensive end, I think, is also going to be a first ballot kind of guy getting in here. Uh, I, I think what's interesting here is you talk about, like, we did this with the senior groups and those kind of things, telling the story of football. When you look at, like, revolutionizing the pass rush and, frankly, adding creativity and those kinds of things, the Dwight Freeney spin move does change how we view pass rush. You used to have all these different things to do with a football player as your pass rusher got past the quarterback level, ways to get back, etc. Now the spin move, ice pick, etc., is like a staple in every defensive line's like toolbox, right? All the defensive linemen that work on things, they work on this to do what Dwight Freeney started doing at a revolutionary type of level as a pass rusher. Dwight Freeney wasn't all flash. He wasn't all spin moves. He actually played the run incredibly well, probably because he's like a short, stocky frame. He's a 6'1 defensive end, right? Uh, he also, at the time, was getting paid as much as any defensive player in the NFL had ever done to that point. He made $72 million in like 2006 or 2007. As I look at the entirety of Dwight Freeney's career, I think Hall of Famer, I've got him in the first ballot because I think I value what he did as a defensive lineman at an incredibly high level. Because as we've seen around the time of his career until now, one of the only ways to slow down the pass-happy offenses of modern football is to have a guy like Dwight Freeney rushing the passer and disrupting the offense. Because you're not allowed to do the same kinds of hand-checking, hip-checking, etc. with receivers down the field. And frankly, you have to get the quarterback super, super fast if you're going to get to them at all. So what Dwight Franey did as a pass rusher was only amplified by the era he played in. After a fairly successful stint with the Annapolis Colts, he went to San Diego and had an early, early in his time in San Diego injury, which kind of changed the trajectory of his career. Uh, I, I think that it's worth pointing out, though, he still had things like a big four symbol for a touchdown while he was there. He then eventually gets to Arizona and has, uh, you know, a couple big weeks of football while he's in Arizona. And that was a good Arizona defense that he, like, captained as far as, like, a locker room kind of guy would go on these kinds of things. But if that career never had that altering injury in 20, oh, I think it was 13, 2013, I, I have to say that I think that the continued, he, he had 125 sacks across his 15-year career, like the continued impact from this like bowling ball of a defensive end is a surefire Hall of Fame career. I've got him in the first ballot because I saw that early career, the, the six or seven year run in Indianapolis as worth it. That's a six or seven year run of Hall of Fame football. I guess I could see he could talk me out of it. If not, because it's you know second ballot kind of guy, a third ballot kind of guy, but I'm going to put him on the first ballot he's in because of how dominant that first stretch of football was. All right, so much like our previous two modern NFL Hall of Fame Class of 2023 inductees, I'm going to induct Daryl Rivas, who's one of the best to ever do what he did, just like Thomas and Freeney were. The stretch of football Revis played from 2007 to 2012, and even the stuff later in his career with like his run with the Patriots, those kind of things, are truly once-in-a-lifetime type of coverage and once-in-a-lifetime type of football. You get to watch Revis create Revis Island because he truthfully <laughs> covered and surrounded everything like water, but he, he also just completely changed and revolutionized in a pass-happy 
era of football what we think of as possible for a single defender. He would take away entire halves of the field as a corner covering. He's going to mark up your best guy and lock them down on an entire half of the field. And if you flip your receiver, he's flipping with them to then take away the other half of the field. It's unlike things we see even the most elite level corners do now. I'm not saying there aren't good corners now. We're looking at an era of football where pass defense is as important as ever and some of the top athletes in the world are covering guys. I'm saying Dale Revis just did it better. That's what I'm saying about watching Dale Revis cover guys like Hall of Famer Calvin Johnson all over the football field, giving up a couple inches in height, a couple inches in vertical, and about 20 pounds in strength, and still not letting him catch a football. I know Hall of Famers are made by having lots of Hall of Fame caliber seasons, but I have to go back to his 2009 season in which, over the course of the season and playoffs, quarterbacks went... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is, so they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready.